Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Mr. Mark Zweig to the show. Mark, uh, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure, John. I'm I'm honored. Uh, before Mark and I get deep, we're going to take a quick break in uh, a word from our sponsor about the Glass Build Show in Atlanta coming up in September with the National Glass Association. Glass Build America is back. Goodbye, virtual shows. Hello, real products, real people, and real business opportunities. The industry is reuniting at the largest glass, glazing, window, and door event in the Western Hemisphere for the buying and business building that only an in-person trade show can deliver. The leading commercial glazing contractors, glass fabricators, and residential fenestration manufacturers and installers are heading to Atlanta September 13th through the 15th for Glass Build America the Glass Window and Door Expo. Strengthen your supply chain and get the tools, products, and resources to future-proof your business. Your competition will be at GlassBuild. Will you? For more information and to register, visit GlassBuild.com. All right. Thank you. Here we are. We're back. Thanks for listening. So, Mark, um, man, you're one of those guests I can say he needs no introduction the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Zweig. But for those who, for some reason, might not know you, introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from, who you are, what you do. I, I always say the reality is is, is probably going to be a letdown. Um, but um, no, um, I am uh, from Kirkwood, Missouri, St. Louis suburb. Went to school, Southern Illinois University, got my undergrad and MBA there, um, did it quickly. I, I started selling bikes on the street corner, my mom and dad's house when I was about nine, mm-hmm. went to work in bike shops when I first bike shop when I was 12 or 13. And by the time I was 18, I was making about 700 bucks a week, which was insane in 1975. Wow. Uh, my first job offer out of undergrad school was 8800 a year. And that was from the <laughs> Southern Illinois newspaper um, where I was the assistant circulation manager. Um, and then uh, and then grad school, I, after I got my MBA, I, I started at 12000 a year working for a consulting firm that served primarily contractors and developers. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had occasional opportunities to work with architects and engineers. And, and that's really where I got into the AE business. That was 1980 and, um, built myself a little, a little practice inside that company. And, um, then I got recruited by one of my clients, which was an AE firm in Memphis, Mm -hmm. Pickering firm and joined them when they had about 200 employees the year before they bought Intergraph CAD, if you remember that, John. I do. I very much do. <laughs> well, we we were using it to do things like design aluminum siding for brick buildings for the Huntsville Division Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Which was not a real good use of it. You probably could have come up with about five standard details, and that would have been okay. But um, anyway, we, we designed siding. Um, projects, but uh, we, we use it for more than that. But in any case, they lost a whole bunch of money that first year of Intergraph. And so they went out onto the floor to some of us younger folks and um, asked us if we wanted to buy into the company. So I did take that opportunity. I think I was 25 or six at the time. And so I became an owner, minor owner, but an owner nevertheless of that company. I knew back then if you worked in the AE business and you weren't a principal of the firm, uh, you'd have A, not a very good parking spot, most likely, and B, you couldn't get your typing done. Uh, (laughs) There was always like a cranky older woman who was in charge of the word processing pool and the lower down in the pecking order you were, the longer it took to get your stuff out. So that's funny. That was a good reason uh, to become an owner in the firm so I could get my typing done, which I did. Um, so, in any case, and then I got recruited by another of my former clients, 
which was uh, Carter and Burgess in Fort Worth, Texas, and Russell Laird. He had recently moved to Carter and Burgess at that time from a big company in Houston called 3D International. They were a big high-rise design firm, did a lot of work in the Middle East, and uh, Russell was a client of mine, and, and Carter and Burgess had been too already, um, interestingly. And so he, he pestered me repeatedly to come to Fort Worth to talk with them about a job. They, they um, at the time I was in charge of both human resources and marketing for the company I worked at. That's an odd combination. It is. It, it, it was, although, you know, I, I was a good recruiter and so I could sell. And that's basically what the job was back I then. see. You know, because HR now has gotten so technical on the internal side. Oh, um, yeah. In fact, Deborah, my office manager who does HR as well, she said she saw a woman with a shirt yesterday that said, I can't HR, I can't manage crazy, but I document it well. And I thought, <laughs> that's a really good shirt. But yeah, I can see it. And you and I have talked about this where there's two components to HR. There's the recruiting component, which is aligned with marketing. And then there's the internal operational component, which is aligned with the technical part. And so that makes sense if the job was yeah. that. Well, it was it was the all encompassing, but that was my thrust. And yeah. that was where I was valuable. You know, I wrote a book on HR back in 1990, John. It's published by Wiley. Okay. And you can probably get on eBay and get one for about three bucks. Okay. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's woefully out of date, but, but nevertheless. Um, so yeah, I started there. I ended up in the head of marketing um, I, at Pickering, which is the company before Carter and Burgess. First, I was in charge of marketing and HR for what they called division one. It was Memphis and Little Rock. Those were the biggest units that we had. Then about four months later, I ended up in that job for the overall company. But um, but then at Carter and Burgess, um, again, I started as the head of HR. They they were about 320 people when I joined them. Wow. And in 1984, they had a 43% turnover rate. Oh so just goodness. imagine that. I can't. So in any case, my job was to get that down and fill a bunch of jobs, which I did. And then there, too, I ended up the head of marketing after maybe six months or a year. And it was, it was an exciting time. We had the recession of 86 in Fort Worth, just basically DFW area kind of collapsed. Houston had already gone through it. And uh, it was a really negative time. I mean, the company's revenues were declining steadily. We were very land development dependent. Mm -hmm. And there were like 200,000 lots on the ground in DFW area at that time. So there was just, it just ground to a halt. Wow. And um, anyway, um, so then in 1988, I had been writing for another uh had been writing for a management newsletter for the AE industry. Um, name I'll, I'll not mention, but um, if I do, I have to make the sign of the cross. I think uh, I know what it is, but keep going. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I got recruited um, from Fort Worth to go to work for this company as the executive vice president, mm -hmm. the company that published the newsletter. And um, at the time, we had been wanting to move out of DFW. We didn't really, we didn't really like it that much at that time. Um, my then wife was watching a show called Thirty Something. If you remember that, I do. And you know, there were two cool guys, and they had old, crusty houses, and they lived in Philadelphia. They started their own company, the Michael and Elliot Company. They had like a basketball hoop in the office and brick exposed brick walls. And I thought, man, that's really cool. We should live in either Philadelphia or Boston. And I had a couple of siblings went to, to college and at Harvard. And uh, so I knew Boston was cool. This company was based in Boston. So I took the job. We moved up there. And my thoughts all along were, if it doesn't work out, I'm either going to go to back to school to get my PhD and be a college professor, 
or I will start my own business. Mm. And I had the business plan done from, I wrote it in November of 86 for what started as Mark Zweig and Associates, then became Zweig White, and then today is Zweig Group. Mm-hmm. So let's just say the nice way to say it was, I didn't have a lot of time to make my decision on whether I'd go get my PhD or start my business. It, <laughs> it, it, it arrived more quickly than perhaps I thought it would. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. An opportunity to start my own business, which I did. Um, 1988, July of 88, I launched um, Mark Zweig and Associates, um, which was a consulting firm serving the architecture and engineering industry, as you know, mm-hmm. um, with uh, really doing a wide ranging set of services, everything from recruiting to business planning, to marketing consulting, to eventually appraisal, M&A, ownership transition, even IT related consulting at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we broadened that with a wide range of products. I had a non-compete on newsletters for three years. Even after I started this company, I was still the editor of the other newsletter for a fee. Interesting. And um, that ended about seven months later. I think really the the deal there was it was a good ploy to get me to sign a three-year non-compete on newsletters. So I could not have a paid subscription newsletter for three years. So what I did was, I did one for free and I started with 250 people in my Rolodex. And by the end of that three years, I had about 2,300 people I was sending it to. Nice. It, it looked like the Kiplinger report. If you remember that. I do. You know, it was just typewritten courier font. We used to all get that. And um, so that was the style. And um, so the day my non-compete ran out, we sent out a, I subscribe here for, I think at the time it was like, I don't know, 175, 200 bucks, I think a year. And we got about 500 subscriptions immediately. So that was like a hundred thousand dollar shot in the arm. Yeah. Greatly appreciated at that time. I'll bet it was. <laughs> but we had started doing surveys and, you know, our whole thrust was everybody else did the same surveys, So we did one on valuation. Nobody had that. Then we did one on what we called the principal survey. And we got into things like, what kind of cars do you guys drive? And, you know, uh, what what color are they? And how large is your office? And do you have a private secretary or do you share administrative support? And a lot of questions like that that were a little different. One of them was, do you feel one or more of your fellow principals is just coasting to retirement. Mm. And of course, that was my press release. It was pre-written. I didn't know what the percentage would be, but I knew whatever it was, it was going to make good um, press. And mm. uh, so we did these surveys and then we got into, you know, basically everything else. We, we started hiring people. We opened up a bunch of offices in the end, we had a, a, a significant company, you know, um, it was probably uh, at its peak after we sold the firm to a private equity firm in 2004, uh, got up to around 130 employees mm-hmm. and was doing close to $20 million in revenue. Um, although I never got the financials at the end, even though I was on the board um, in our, in our, uh, chairman of the private equity uh, uh, firm who was responsible for us was a CPA, but we didn't have good accounting uh, by then. Um, But uh, in any case, so that was really my story. We got on the Inc. 500 list twice, 95 and 96. um, And we just had a company that was going straight up. I mean, it grew by 30% a year for 13 years in a row, it was always profitable. We never had an average collection period higher than 30 days. We had the best D&B credit worthiness rating you could have. And it was just a straight upward ride until 2001, when 9-11 hit. Well, first it was the uh, uh, the crisis, the, the uh, was it R- Ryson in the mail? 
Um, if you remember uh, the the rice and scare, I can remember that. Yeah, we, we, we this was sometime before nine eleven. I think it was around like April of that year, some maybe May. And um, so the first scare was, holy cow, we're not going to be able to get our mail out and we're not going to get any mail back. Everything was mailed then. Yeah. And um, so that was kind of scary because we just, you know, depended on that and completely to get paid. It was prior to the electronic payment that we have today. Yeah. And, uh, and then 9-11 and man, it was just like, holy cow. Uh, Ian Rusk and I, Ian's got his own company now called Rusk um, O'Brien Guido. And Ian and I were flying out that morning. And needless to say, we didn't uh, go on our trip, but everything came to a halt. And so 2001, the revenue flattened out. We didn't decline, but we did flatten out. And the next three years, we, we had the company sold at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and our buyers bailed out immediately. Um, it was, uh, you know, they pulled their horns in. It was a nonprofit that was buying us, interestingly, hmm. a, a professional association that serves our industry. And um, anyway, they bailed out. So we had to work three years to, to uh, find another buyer. You know, everybody was deflated, you know, because we were all spending the money we were going to get prior to getting it in our minds. And, uh, but we slogged it out, and uh, in the end, we sold to this private equity firm. So at that point, I retired from that business entirely, mm -hmm. um, and I moved to from the Boston area to Fayetteville, Arkansas, which a lot of people are like, how could you do that? Um, Fayetteville is a really interesting place. I, I don't know if you know much about it, John. You're there in Ohio, but we... Um, we're a super high growth area, very entrepreneurial. This is where Walmart is based in our metro area. They're in Bentonville. I see. We, we've crossed over 500,000 population. Um, and we have the University of Arkansas here in Fayetteville. Uh, before I moved here, I started teaching one night a week at the Walton College. I had an opportunity to teach here. And I taught entrepreneurship. I was the only undergrad professor who taught entrepreneurship. I was an adjunct at that time. And uh, so I flew down one night a week from Boston to do it. And I loved it. Bought a house down here. My, my then wife, she was from this area originally. It's closer to my mom and dad in St. Louis. So we did it. We moved here and uh, never regretted that. It's been a really great place to live. I've been here now 17 years. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, go on, John. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I expanded my role at the U of A over that time. I'm now a full-time uh, you know, professor, entrepreneur in residence for the Walton College. And a year ago in this past January, we I was part of the management department and they, we broke off in a new department called Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Venture Innovation. And we just had a little party because these people had never all been together. I mean, a lot of us had never even met each other thanks to COVID. Mm -hmm. 29 people in my department now. It, it, unbelievable. That sounds like a, a wonderfully fun title. I love that title. Can you say that again? Department of what? Oh, it's it's uh, Department of Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Venture Innovation. That just sounds like a like a sandbox, like a candy store to me. <laughs> it really, I mean, we have so much freedom to do what we want to do. And so we've got a whole new range of faculty. We've got people, some of them are everybody from Harvard educated nurses who had their own business to artists to just a wow. wide range of, of uh, people out there. And uh, it's really fun. I, I mean, I love University of Arkansas. It's a great institution. It's super well financed, uh, we, you know, thanks to the Waltons. I mean, they've mm -hmm. done so much for us. And uh, we've got a fantastic college of business. Our dean 
Matt Waller is just a brilliant guy. Uh, he's practical. He's nice. He knows how to lead people. He knows how to get stuff done in this environment. And I just have nothing but good things to say mm-hmm. about the Walton College. It's the greatest job I ever had. And I own, you know, probably half a dozen businesses. And <laughs> I got to say, I like working here better than any of them, probably. Truthfully. Well, it 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 sounds like, though, if you cut through everything, from the start, first of all, you were entrepreneurial at a young age. You took a, you're, I'm cracking up because I've got the numbers written down here in my notes. You actually took a pay cut in 1980 from your, from your bicycle job, <laughs> a significant pay cut to get into the profession. So you were like Gary Vaynerchuk before he existed. And, uh, but um, I did not know that you were full-time because yeah, yep. you do so many things. So you're a full-time prof there. And I think, I think deep down, it probably sounds like it aligns with your unique ability, you know, teaching and inspiring people. So that, that actually makes sense to me, but I, I do have to add uh, everything I know about Fayetteville, Arkansas. I know from your Twitter stream, I, I gotta say, and uh, it does sound interesting, but my uncle, my uncle, John, who is an architect retired. He's in his eighties. Now he lives in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Okay. And uh, he was the one that said to me, just quick segue here. He says, I was trying to decide at 18 years old, do I want to be a civil engineer or do I want to be an architect? You know, I just, I was right on the fence between the two. The art part intimidated me a little bit, but I wasn't as great at math as some of my, my friends in high school. My dad was an engineer. My uncle was an architect. So (laughs) the famous quote, which was partly true, but not fully. And I was kind of naive. My, my uncle says, my uncle Johnny's from Arkansas. He goes, Johnny, if you want to make money, be an engineer. If you want to have fun, be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> so I became an engineer and uh, a civil structural. But then, of course, I'd navigate, I migrated towards facade and aesthetic yeah, engineering, you- which is like the best of both worlds. And this, this industry caters to architectural engineers and civil structural engineers. And it's a blend of both. So, you know, I, I probably got what I would have wanted anyway. I love architectural engineering programs. I mean, there's not many of them. No, there aren't. Penn state, um, yep. Madison, K state. Um, I think A&M or, or UT used to have one. UT. I think so. Yeah. I think you're right. But yeah, it's a great program for people to do what you do. I mean, you've got to obviously bridge those two fields uh, right. in a sense. But yeah, it's, um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it, Fayetteville is a great area. I mean, it's super entrepreneurial. We've got a super low unemployment rate here. It's always lower than the rest of the nation. I had no idea you were at 500,000 population. That's, yeah. that's a pretty big area. It is. It's like a metroplex. If you go from at the north end, Bella Vista, mm-hmm. which, you know, who was it? The guy, um, Ponch used to advertise lots in Bella Vista on late night TV, if you remember. I don't remember that. That's funny, though. Chips, that show, Ponch. Anyway, that's what Bella, Bella Vista, you couldn't give the lots away for a while. I had a bunch of them over there. And then suddenly now, of course, they're all worth a fortune. Everybody's moving there. But um, but this area is just exploding. We're very bicycle-centric. Um, mm-hmm. The Waltons really want to make Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas the bicycling center of the world. Why is that? They're into it. They think it, it should be like the Vail, Colorado equivalent of bicycling in um, so we've just got so many new things going on. We've got a lot of bicycle companies moving here. This summer, I'm teaching a seminar uh, through the executive education uh, division here um, on the for, to, for those who want to start outdoor recreation businesses. And it's called something like everything you needed to know. You didn't know that you didn't know about starting a business. It's kind of a funny title, but Anyway, that's what's happening here. It, it's a it's a really cool area. Fort Smith, it's a lot different. I mean, if if you ever been to Worcester, Mass? Oh yeah, many times. Okay, well, Fort Smith is the Worcester of Arkansas. I got you. Okay, 
it used to be the second largest city and it was an industrial area that had large corporations making stuff there. Mm-hmm. And basically it's been on sort of a decline for the last probably 30 years. Mm-hmm. Although now they're, they're going through a bit of a Renaissance there due to um, really there's one entrepreneur that, that has a guy named Steve Clark that's done a lot with it um, downtown. And now, um, the Air Force is moving a major training uh, operation there. But anyway, that's an aside on Fort Smith. But um, so Fayetteville, so the teaching, I was three-quarter time for probably the last 14 years. And um, it's it's uh, it's very interesting. You know, the students, of course, they're the best part. Yeah. One of my sons-in-law works for a company started by one of my students, and it's a consulting firm he's a geologist and they do a variety of different things they they save on energy and utility costs and that's great and waste reduction and things like that and then next my next door neighbor uh the guy sold the house lives next door to me he was a physician and another couple buys it and um it's a it's a uh, the the guy is one of my students from 16 years ago and the daughter is a physician and she's the daughter of a friend of mine. So it's crazy. And then the guy across the street from me is a friend of mine I've known for 25 years before either of us lived in Fayetteville. That's wild. So he lives directly across the street from me. It's just, that's the way it is around here. Everybody's related. How's the, That's fun. Yeah, it really is fun. We live in a great neighborhood. Everybody gets along. And I just love seeing my former students be successful. You know? Yeah, well, well, the more you, the longer you teach, and the bigger that circle gets, the more connections you're going to have in that area for sure. So that that's a great background. Um, there's a ton of content just there. Let's let's put a bookmark there for a minute if we can. I'm sure uh, there are those in our audience who are um, interested, kind of in digging deeper into the AE industry now. Sure. Everybody, we, we have to give Mark a minute to vent on AEC because he just posted on Twitter, okay, I'm going to relent. I'm going to say AEC instead of just AE. But I agree with you. It's architecture, engineering, and construction. The, the C never really fit, but yet it kind of does and it doesn't. Yeah. Any, any comments about that? I thought it was funny when I well, saw it. They're just such different animals, you know, and, 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 you know, what we didn't even talk about it in 05, I started a development and construction company and I had a general con unlimited general contractors license, commercial and residential here. And, and, you know, we got that business up to do, and, and we were doing five to $10 million a year in revenue and um, got it on the ink list as well in 2014. But it's just a totally different animal, John. I mean, going from the AE side over to contracting, I was totally unequipped for it. Really? Yeah. It it just completely unequipped. I mean, it's not that I didn't know anything about building, but once you start trying to do it on on any kind of scale, just the, the ethics are so different. The financial, you know, aspects of it are so different. I just think it's a completely different animal. I came out of the AE side where everybody's like you. They're all, you know, I say everybody, the majority of people, they're intelligent, they're creative, they're nice, they're honest, they do what they say they're going to do. There's very, very few unethical instances of unethical behavior. Yeah, we've seen some, but not much. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the contracting side, it's like an outlaw business. I mean, you're competing against people who are just flat out doing things illegally, doing them wrong, doing them wrong even when they don't have to do them wrong. They, they just want to do them wrong. You know, it, it's just a, it's such a different mentality. And, you know, anyway, but yes, we are coming together as one industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I my excuse for adopting the AEC moniker is it includes consultants of all types. Exactly. Uh, and like yourself, you know, you, you you fit into that C category, I think. Without e, well, we fit into E and C because yeah. we do 
building envelope engineering on the delegated design side and we do building envelope consulting. Yeah, and and right. people are like, well, what's the difference? And you're like, well, on the consulting side, we're using similar skill sets that are more gray beard to owners and are kind of selling to the end user. Yeah. And on the other side, we're serving trade exactly. subcontractors. So sure. I, so in addition to the C being consulting, I think it is because we are so indelibly linked to the organizations we serve as architects sure. and engineers, you can't, it's different than saying, you know, B to C, you know, or however you want to trade. There's too many other categories in that consumer, but in the contracting yeah. is, is kind of it. It so, is. I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, of course, design build and, you know, a lot of the lines are getting fuzzier. Fuzzy. So, yeah. Definitely. So let's just jump in for a minute about the current situation which I know you you just blogged about and you took the words right out of my mouth. I'm still I'm still waiting to get to my blog because I'm still formulating. But, you know, one of my guys said here, well, we all know what COVID is like. This was back during COVID, but we don't yet know what the outcomes, the consequences of COVID are going to be. And I don't know why, but I, I believe it relates to the word empowerment. And I'll, I'll get into that in a minute with you. But um, we both talked just before the show how what these dynamics look like. Just let's talk about that for a minute. You know, the change in personnel, uh, shifting with recruiting, with high demand. What are you seeing? I mean, first off, you know, even though I'm retired, I still have a zillion friends out there and I talk to them every day, mm -hmm. honestly. So I got loads of friends that are in the business. And so I still feel like I've got a pretty good touch. And then, of course, I, I do talk with the people at Swag Group, you know, regularly. Yeah. And it's we are in an unbelievable boom. I mean, if you look at a lot of the companies in our business, it, it, post COVID, what happened? Well, first thing during COVID, a lot of them got PPP money, mm -hmm. OK, which was like free money because it just beefed up their their cash position. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, most of them didn't suffer any real um, decline in demand. There might have been a little blip there for three or four months, but it pretty well shook out. You know, I wouldn't want to be designing urban hotels. I think that's a tough market. And it's going to be a while before that fully recovers. Although, you know, you see signs that they're doing even doing well already. You know, we were in New York here uh, like three weeks ago, and the place was absolutely exploding after they opened up after May 19. It was, wow. but you know, everything was packed. But um, so you got an injection of capital from the PPP and other disaster relief funds for a lot of these companies. Um, they were forced into learning how to work remotely. Yes. And of course, that's a huge blessing when you come right down to it, because it opens up a, a completely different labor pool than they had before. Yes. And, you know, and, and it's also a lot more efficient. I mean, I think a lot of people realize they wasted a lot of time at the office every day. You know, they could still have a life and still get a whole lot done. Um, take the commute out alone and maybe all the unnecessary meetings that we tend to end up with. And, you know, so everything got a lot more efficient in all those visits to clients that you didn't have to go to. They did their thing via Zoom or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we, we got a whole lot more efficient right away overnight. And it seems like most companies that I am aware of did a pretty good job with that and found out they could work like that. Now you're seeing companies that in some cases are taking a hard look at their overhead for office space. Some are reducing it and going to hoteling and just getting rid of permanent offices and doing things like that. So, you know, there's an efficiency gain there too, that in some cases, not a huge one, but somewhat of a gain. And um, so here we are right now, demand is higher than I've ever seen before. Everybody is like pulling their hair out with all this work to do. Pricing is better than it has been. You know, I was talking with one of my architect friends the other day, and they're getting 19% fees, okay? 
19% on very, very expensive projects. All right. Oh, that's a big it's, number. It's incredible. All Never, right. That's unprecedented. I know. This is what I'm saying. And, it, you know, these are like, well, this job's got a $50 million apartment with a $40 million interior finishing budget and a $60 million renovation budget. I'm like, are you, you know, it's like, what? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, never seen money made like it's being made right now. I, I've just, I've never seen it in this business. Um, so, so that's an interesting observation on the flip side. So I think a lot of owners and executives, and I'm one of them, think we're doing great. We're more productive. We're more efficient. Yet there are a lot of people who, are working remotely that are not, they, they think they're okay. They're doing their job, but they're actually not healthy. They're not doing well mentally and emotionally or as well, you know, you know, we engineers and technical people tend to be like the proverbial frog in the, in the pot where the water is getting hotter and hotter and the frog boils to death and we get stuck in the weeds. Right. Um, I saw an interesting poll from Microsoft, which, you know, of course they just take data, 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 and 61% of, actually, this came around on an executive forum thread I'm, I'm on, and uh, it said 61% of principals believe everything's going great and they're more efficient, yet 40% of employees are considering changing jobs or reevaluating their life. And yeah. so I am calling it the great shift. And mm-hmm. I think it has to do, you know, we can debate this, but I think it has in part to do with the empowerment created from the technology infrastructure you mentioned. Yes. People never realized, hey, it doesn't really matter where I work or for whom now. I'm a technical professional. I'm going to get paid about the same amount, plus or minus five or 10%. But I'm going to go with the company that aligns the best with my life situation and allows me to work in the most hybrid work from home manner. And the thing is, is there are so many dynamics because for instance, we have a 20 some year old who's a really quality young engineer in Minnesota. He wants to be in the office five days a week. I I like, I call him like he's a fake baby boomer, you know, (laughs) but then we've got others who are like, I don't ever want to come back to the office ever again. Uh I think it puts a tremendous strain and demand on the employer to ask themselves, well, what is, What's the value of our HR manual? What does remote work look like? What does is, what is flex time look like? Some are asking, what about outcome-based companies? I guess, Mark, I would, I would ask, what does it really matter? What hours you work then, as long as you're present for meetings, right? Like, you know, does it matter what time you work? Does it matter where you work? Does it matter what you wear? Or is it all about results and outcomes? Well, it certainly is moving more toward results and outcomes. I mean, but like you said, I mean, sometimes you do have to have certain sort of minimum expectations for when people are going to be available because that's when clients are, or yeah, their their teammates are working. Yes, you know, yes. You can't just say, "Well, I'm going to work every day from midnight to eight a.m. from now on, and screw the rest of you guys." You know, <laughs> if you got a question for me, I'll answer it between midnight and eight a.m. And that's the you know that'd be hard to do. But yeah, no. you're right. I mean, people have so many more options today. I was just noticing. I got this email, and I and it was interesting to me. Just as a college professor, it had a whole bunch of jobs you can get as a professor now strictly online all over the world you do not have to go there and these are real jobs it's not just you know you can teach a class for us and we pay you 5500 bucks or something i mean these are real full-time jobs with benefits you don't need to go there wow and it's just because you as you said the technology that we figured out how to use so successfully you know it's the same thing in teaching i mean you know we do everything's recorded now. If you're live in the classroom, you know, we have people live and then we have people out remotely. I can get anybody to be a speaker. I could get you to be a speaker now. 
and you'll be seen on giant screens. They'll all hear you. And if anybody has a question in the audience, whether they're live or online, they could be sitting 10 rows back in an auditorium and you can hear the question. Wow. You know, it's like, so all these options have just suddenly opened up. For yeah. And, and we have, you know, for the, for our benefit and the benefit of our staff and our people, we, we companies, we owners and investors, we've built the infrastructure to facilitate that. So it's, it's all positive, but I think what it's done is opened up people who maybe weren't principals and organizations to go, well, geez, now I can do like them. I can travel and work from some remote location. I, in fact, I told my partner, I said, it's funny. I almost feel like I, like, I feel like it's been flipped. Now I'm the one who needs to be in the office more to try to figure out these shifting dynamics and everybody else can be in or out or whatever. <laughs> so, well, I think the other, the other thing, John is, you know, COVID did make a lot of people do some navel gazing and, and introspection. You know, at first it's like, well, am I going to die? Am I going to leave my family in a bad position? You know, I right. think a lot of people had those fears. Sure. And then, you know, then you're at home a lot. And then you you start realizing, you know, how do I really want to spend my day every day? Yeah. And 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 that's where that sort of self-examination comes in. And then the the other thing is all the people living in the San Francisco's and the New York cities of the world, you know, where it's crazy expensive and it's hard to do anything, it's super crowded are saying, hey, why do I even need to live like that now? Yeah, you that's know? true. They are. I, I, I've talked to a lot of them. I talked to a client the other day who's a um, property assessment company. They're located in Southern California. I think he used to live in Northern California. They moved to Park City. And then I said, He's, I said, where are you located now? He said, I'm on 120 acres north of Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> exactly. He said, when COVID hit, I, he said, Park City became too aspenized, too veilized. It got annoying. And COVID, my wife and I said, let's just go now. So we bought a farm in Montana. He said, I love it. And, you know, they're not far from the university. So they've got great technology and same kind of thing. I think a lot of people have gone through that or are going through that. So, yeah, it's going to make them question whether they want to work for the company they work in. I, you know, I do think it's it is important that your value system aligns with your employers. Yeah, that's true. And it's not just, you know, um, it, it was, it's not an employer's market anymore. I mean, it's a, it's straight out an employee market right now. That is 100% correct. You are exactly right. Um, you know, we've, we've had more resignations in the last six months than ever before, but we've also hired, um, of, I think two less than the number of resignations and we have two or three other interviews coming up. So it, everybody's going through that, but I think it just demands to me, I, I'm like, I'm really good externally. So like I try to apply, like when I'm thinking innovation and entrepreneurship, I'm always thinking deliver value to the market, deliver value to the market. You know, you've written about this, like listen to the customer. You should know what the price point is. You should know what the value proposition is, but now you've got to take that entrepreneurial itch. And you've got to say, well, how creative can I be internally as well? How can I appeal to staff and to long-term things and to change? And I, it's, yeah. it's very, it's, there's a lot of energy needing to apply. I think it'll settle down, but it's mm -hmm. definitely not the same. So, no, it's not. and you know, we, we've always, we've had a shortage of quote, good people in our business. Sure. I mean, as long as you and I've been in this business, you know, because we always needed, even though maybe we could find people who had the technical background that, you know, that was quote required, we still never had enough really great communicators. And, you know, exactly. That's the thing that, that, you know, I always say, man, you show me an engineer who can write and speak well, that person's going to be very successful. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And, you pair the technical skill with communication. It's a killer. Yeah. It is. It's it's just a recipe for success. And so, you know, and, and now you just add on all that pent up demand mm -hmm. that's out there. And it's it's just it's crazy. I don't know. It, it'll be very interesting to see what happens, as you say. Um, but I do think that 
this technology that we have is going to allow us to bring people on board wherever they are. Not everybody, but some more than in the past. You're, no, you're totally right. I mean, yeah. we have, I was talking to a recruit the other day and I said, well, I have two people in Connecticut, one who covers the Northeast from Connecticut, one who lives in Western Connecticut that went to Yukon, who is actually attached to the Ohio office and has nothing to do with the other guy an hour away. And I've got a guy in Minnesota who was an Ohio office hire who could go to the Minnesota office if he wants, but he has nothing to do with the Minnesota office. That's just the way it is now. Yeah, it is. What do you see? I know you've retired from it and and we could talk about entrepreneurship and, and uh, you know, the exciting work at, at the Walton school there, but, you know, as you keep in touch with your, your former colleagues at, at, at Zweig Group, do you have any predictions on where the AEC industry is going, particularly AE? Do you see any trends? Do you have any predictions or are you kind of past that point? No, no. I, I, well, I don't know if I'm past, I'm always willing to give an opinion. but I'd love I, to I, hear it. No, I, I honestly, I, you know, I think you and I were chatting just briefly about this before. I think one of the biggest forces in our industry is going to be the incredible amount of investment capital that's out there right now looking for a place to be deployed. And they're starting to look at our industry for the first time in a significant way. So what this is going to mean is you're going to see an increasing pace of mergers and acquisitions. You're going to see some of these companies are worth a whole lot more than they were worth even three, four, five years ago. When I say a whole lot more, like maybe three times as much in some cases. Um, so I think you're going to see a continuing consolidation trend of the bigger companies are going to have a tremendous amount of capital. And that's going to allow them to probably more uh, easily get into the at-risk construction business as well as any market or business that they choose to go into. Interesting. And I think, it, it, again, I think that, that, you know, why is that? Well, there's a lot of investment money out there for one thing. But the, 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 the second part of it is that... Um, you know, this business historically has a high return on invested capital. You know, we've had years in our financial performance survey where return on equity is like 60%. And that's wow. not unusual. You know, and you go, how can you do that? Because they're well managed, they collect their money, um, you know, they're profitable. You just look at the profitability as a, you know, function of the uh, book value of the business. And it's not hard to see, you know, there aren't that many businesses can claim they make 60% return on equity. Yeah, that's true. You know, in addition, addition, if people aren't aware of it that are listening, much of the time one spends, I know particularly in our business, but also in architecture and engineering businesses in general, uh, applies to R&D tax credits because of the technology and software you're using. I, I like your point about that. You know, it's not something, you know, many of us are, I, I, I call us a, a marketing and sales company that happens to do engineering and others are engineering and design companies and others are financial companies. But I think the financial companies that happen to do engineering and architecture are, are less prevalent. But you make a great point that there is more cash on balance sheets from the PPP and the emergency loans and the kind of hunkering down than there has ever been. I mean, there is a lot of cash. It's accomplishing exactly what it was supposed to accomplish. Right. It is. That's right. You talk about a board of advisors all the time that, hey, if you don't have an outside board of advisors, you're not thinking correctly. And I've had one for a while with with three folks. And that's one of the exact points one of the board members made. He said, I have never seen so much cash. He's like got eight or nine other businesses he's involved with or more. And he's like, people have money. They're looking to spend money. And what, Listen, I, yeah. I, I've talked to private equity fund, firms that had billions to invest. Billions. About that. Billions. Wow. Okay. 
it's a completely different scheme from anything I ever experienced in the past. And, you know, all the talk about the infrastructure and the poor condition it's in in this country. I mean, you got to realize there are a lot of people out there that have a lot of money. And so they pay attention to what's going on in the world. And it's like, okay, infrastructure, that's big. There's a lot of needs out there. Let's go into infrastructure. And that's about how they make their decisions. Right, right. You know? And it's like, okay, you know, now of course, you know, we haven't seen any new funding yet for any of that. There's all these different definitions of what is infrastructure. And hey, no matter what your definition is, there's a lot of pent-up demand. There are a lot of needs of all kinds in every sector. And it, it just to somebody from the outside. They're looking in and they're going, holy cow, this, this business is going to be facing incredible demand for a really, really long time in the future. Interesting. So, yeah, that's an interesting observation. And I, to your point, I'm sure your, your colleagues and friends have seen it and we've seen it as well, you know, getting emails pretty regularly about, hey, we're buying businesses and we're interested in you. And you get them almost as much as you get a recruiter calling your people, which is about at least a few times a week, if not every day. It's, it's so true. Yeah. Now, I always tell people, you've got to be careful with a lot of those. A lot of them are just fishing. Totally. They don't have a buyer, but they act like they do. And then they get you interested. Yeah, there's, it's got to be it's got to be legitimate. Um Okay, so venture capital, more M&A, um, and that's certainly happening. Um, what about young professionals entering the business? You have a great space to provide input on this because you're teaching MBA students, but you're also familiar with architecture and engineering. What kind of advice do you give to those who might be interested in the technical professions, and even in construction, AE and construction? Well, I have mainly, I, I really teach undergrad. I am, I am a grad okay. faculty approved, but okay. I've only been like a guest lecturer over there. But so mainly I have undergrads and I do have a lot of engineers, predominantly mechanical engineering students. For some reason, they tend to be more interested in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. Because, you know, they, some electricals, I mean, I get some structurals and civils and landscape architects and others, but you know, I think my my advice to young people is really figure out like what you're interested in. You know, what kinds of things do you like to do? What industry really gets you excited? And then where you want to live, you know, and the sooner you go where you want to live and the sooner you can go to work for a company that does what you think you are really interested in, the better off you're going to be. Because if you violate either one of those, particularly the industry, and let's say you go work somewhere for five or 10 years, eight years, whatever. Now I want to shift industries, but I'm still an expert in my discipline area. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay a price for that. You're going to step back. Why do that? You know, why, why waste any time? The sooner, even if you make less money, Go where you really have a passion mm -hmm. um, for it. And um, I mean, that's my best advice. And then, of course, always, I think, learning how to sell is super, super critical. It makes you more successful at anything, even if you never sell anything other than your technical solution. If you can present that to a client mm -hmm. in a way that's compelling they're more likely to do what you want them to do or your employer. Let's say you're in a, yeah. you know, and that's going to make you be more valuable. That's, you know, that's going to, that's what you want. You want people to do what you think they need to do. It's in their best interest. So yeah. selling, selling sales. It's so, it, it, you know, it, it's really there aren't many places that you can get that, unfortunately. Right. Well, you know, we talk selling and communication are related, although they, you know, communication covers a, a variety of, yeah, you know, spaces. But I, like you, I say, if you, if you're a good communicator, then follow that path as a technical professional, even 
Um, if you're not a good communicator, learn to communicate in writing and speaking because that's except. And we know that communication is the number, lack of communication is the highest generator of risk claims in the AE industry. So communication wins. Communication wins with communicating value proposition, minimizing your risk, selling solutions to customers. Um, yeah. So I I say, I, I think engineering and architecture schools, and they're not going to listen to me, but instead of you know the required core classes in English, they all ought to require technical writing and they all ought to require speech. And I took a speech class, but it was a elective. Sure. Those skills carry you a long way. No, no question about it. And and listen, I, I hate to say it. I mean, the architects are worse than the engineers. They are taught to speak and write, well, taught to write in ridiculously complex uh, ways that mm. obfuscates what they're really trying to communicate. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. You should read some of the undergraduate architectural students writing, you know, I taught in the college of architecture too, as an adjunct. And uh, I taught a class called everything they don't usually teach you in architectural school. That sounds fun. It was fun, but you're, you're so right. I mean, it's just so important and it's a skill you can learn, you know, anybody can learn it. Well, I know I tend to be very wordy in my writing. No surprise. I like to talk. And so I have, a number of folks like Josh, my my audio engineer and social media guy here, my <laughs> wife. If I run something by them or my daughter, it's like Rev four, Rev five. They, I've got it from three thousand words down to one hundred and twenty now. You know, I mean, it keeps getting brief. More, it's like a Hemingway novel instead of a, a Michener novel. But they're doing a good job for you. I mean, your tweets, you, you don't take all your space in those many times, John. Well, you know what? The tweets are mine. And I do have to say, I think one of the values of Twitter is you have to communicate your thought in 280 characters. And I think it actually, it, I don't know about you, but I'll test ideas on Twitter. And if they really get traction, I'll know, well, this is what I need to blog more about. Yeah. Because it's like a micro blog. It's like a billboard to me. And I think I was listening to a guy, a writer, the guy that wrote um, Bagger Vance. He wrote for 30 years before he got a novel deal, 30 years. And wow. he said he was a copy editor at an advertising agency. And he said, I would go to my boss with what I thought this was great copy. And he'd say, get out of here. This is garbage. Nobody's going to read that. Get it down to five seconds. Get it down to 10 words. <laughs> it's really true. You know, like Geico's got it right. Geico's got it right on the social media lead-ins. You know, before you can click skip ad, they're done with the ad. And there you go. You got it. No, you're right. It is a skill and something you can learn. Everybody's attention span is so short now. Yeah. That it's more important than ever. You know, we're all so distracted. I mean, that's the, to me, is the worst aspect of our culture today. It's like, we live in a culture of unbelievable distraction. That's it's true. hard. You know, it's hard to, for anybody to focus on anything. I, I've recently taken up cutting my lawn, John. Now you could go, oh, wow, great. Swag's cutting his own grass, you know, for the first <laughs> time in probably 35 years. Well, you know, all the re, I mean, I have good landscapers. I mean, we used to give them a tremendous amount of business. We had all these properties you know, we sold off a huge number of rental properties and everything, but they still work for us. But it, it's gratifying. And you go out there and for five hours, I'm pushing my mower and I can't be on my phone. I'm not distracted. It gives you a chance to actually think about something. And then you get the gratification of being done with something that took you five hours to do. I think that that's lacking for a lot of people today which is part of the reason why they're also unsatisfied. They never focus on anything. And that's just one example of many, obviously. You know, I built cars from the ground up where we made the frame, we made the body. And not just when I say built, we didn't just paint it and, and redo it. And you know, that's so gratifying when you can do 
something that actually takes some focus and concentration and see it all the way through to complete. And it has a finish. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's there. Do you, you know? do you do some of your best thought time then when you're mowing the yard? Absolutely. I mean, I used to ride motorcycles a lot. I had a bad accident in 2016. Mm. Well, I say bad. I screwed up my left hand and my wife had to take me to the hospital and she hates them. Uh, but it's motorcycling. You get that too, um, where you go on a ride because you, you know, you can't be on your phone at the same time, but that's killing our, our, our ability to get things done. I think it's really hurting people's self-esteem, you know, is this lack of ability to focus. I think people read a lot less. That's part of the reason why, I mean, they read, you know, I read a million articles, but you know, I got a stack of books next to my bed, uh, you know? Yeah, me too. Right. We're, we're going this summer, we're going to go on a, on a road trip to, to, uh, well, you mentioned Aspen. That's one of the places where we're going Taos. Uh, my sister-in-law lives in Santa Fe. And I said to my wife, let's just bring a bunch of books. Let's just go sometime and just read all freaking day long. That's great. You know, I It'll love be so it. It's fun to do that. Yeah, it would be. So we're coming to the end of our time. I mean, we could do, you know, if I was Tim Ferriss, we'd be ready to launch into hour two and then get in where we, till we were uh, talked out. Um, I'm glad you brought up motorcycles and cars because I know you're a big motorcycle and car guy. Um, people can look you up there. Um, before we start to close, anything you want to say? to the audience, anything you want to say to close up our conversation? Well, yeah, I will say this, that whenever I run into people who don't know what they want to do, I encourage them to take a look at our business, our industry, mm -hmm. because I do think that, you know, I've had exposure to lots of different fields and lots of different industries. I still think this is a fantastic place for people to be technical or not, you know, if they're marketing people or financial people or IT people, I just think that the people of, that make up this industry are some of the nicest, most creative, well-intentioned people that you'll meet in any field anywhere. And that really makes it rewarding to, to work in, in, um, so I always, I always try to get people to take a look at this, this business. I, I, in fact, I got a note from a, re, a student of mine from like 14 years ago. And uh, she, she works in the power industry. And she said, I remember you told me I should go to work in the AE business. And you were right. You know, <laughs> this has been fantastic career for me. That's so good. No. And, and so uh, I guess that's sort of my last thought. I, I still think this is a great business. We got a long way to go. We still build shoes a pair at a time too much. We're going to be facing all kinds of changes out there, but it's, it's very exciting. And you guys do something good for society that we need. We, I, I do know? like that point. We do something good for society. We do yeah. productive, meaningful work. Like, and, and of course, I like to say, of course, I'm a little biased because all the architecture and engineering, all the design professions are worthwhile. But I'm like, where would we be without civil engineers, civil structurals, exactly. highways, water, wastewater structure? I, I always joke a doctor can only kill one person at a time, but we could take a thousand out in one stroke of the pen. OK, I'm being facetious here. Well, that's why structural engineers are pretty conservative. Though. Yes, you support you support societies mm -hmm. th through all of those technical professions. So that is a great word, Mark. In fact, I'm I'm a bit re-energized and encouraged by it as well because when you're in the daily battle, and the daily grind, and behind on everything with customers, it, it can be mind-numbing at times. Exactly, and you look at people that do other things. You know, does it really matter if you? use tide versus all temperature you know you remember <laughs> it's like my whole life is devoted to getting people to you I mean, it seems i think that's going to lead to a lot of dissatisfaction later on for a lot of people you know they think well if i make enough money young people think that 
if I make enough money, you know, I can do anything I want. I'll be happy. But we all figure out at some point that's not the key to happiness at all. No, not at all. Otherwise, all the billionaires would be the happiest people on the planet, and they're not all the happiest people on the planet. Well, like one of my friends who's a very successful architect in New York says, John, you'll love this. He goes, there's nothing like a billion dollars. It's like miracle grow for neuroses. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, that's why Mackenzie Bezos is giving it well, Mackenzie Smith, forgive me. That's why she's giving it all away. She's already given away $8 billion. Like she just wants to get rid of it. You know, good for her. That's a big responsibility. But um, gosh, Mark, it's fantastic. The time with you goes so quickly, but we're at the end of our time here. Um, I want to make sure people know where to, you know, Mark is a man of many interests. Um, you can follow him on Twitter, right? You're on Twitter. Um, you can follow Zwei Group on Twitter as well. You're on LinkedIn. Yep. Any other social media platforms of note? Those are really the ones I use. You know, I write for the my article for the Zweig Letter every week. Um, I write for the Walton College Insights blog, although I'm taking a little breather right now this summer. Normally, I write weekly. And then I write for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal. And I put all that stuff out there on Twitter and LinkedIn. John. It's a great service to humanity, honestly. Um, if you... If you don't follow Mark on Twitter, look him up. I'll put it in the show notes. If you don't follow him on LinkedIn, do the same. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Um, I think it's also markswig.com, right? You have your own website. Yep. And so um, I read regularly those posts and articles. They're very insightful. He's pretty prolific. So um, look that up. It's definitely a service to humanity that uh, to put that out and let us all see it without a subscription. Thank you for that. And um, if you're into cars, antique cars, antique motorcycles, um, commercial property, there's a lot of content there too. I said the other day, dude, how many wheeled vehicles do you have? And you're well, like, I I used to have more. I'm thinking, okay, yeah. Yeah, it it you know it, just like we were talking about, you have too much stuff you don't even appreciate it. Honestly, I mean, it's so yeah. that's the mode I'm in. I think less is more. It's tempting, and you, you can waste a lot of time on that stuff too, John. You know, it's, yeah, it's, you got to spend more time on more meaningful things. I've got five daughters, and you know, my thirty year old is getting ready to have my first um, grandchild, and. Uh, She's like, uh, you know, I think she was feeling like I should be spending more time asking her how she's doing. And I said, you're right. You know, I really, I really should. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So those things can be distractions, too. Yeah, no doubt. Well, he is Mark Zweig, um, entrepreneur, professor, uh, founder and former owner of Zweig Group. And uh, you heard the history here. Everything will be in the show notes. And uh, Mark, again, I can't thank you enough. I hope you have a fabulous rest of the day, a fabulous summer, and we'll continue to keep up with each other on Twitter, okay? And let's, anytime you just want to give me a call and we can talk, John, let's do it. That's a wonderful, wonderful offer. Thanks, Mark. Have a, thank have a great day. Okay, you too, John.